Kentucky. Uh, there was a great demand for uh, some uh, sex education for the parish, uh, and so I decided usually the people who need the educating were the parents, and so I asked this uh, expert from Planned Parenthood to come talk about sex to an adult, large adult class, and I'd forgotten that it was Mother's Day, and it, <laughs> it was coincidental that we had the talk on AIDS last week on Mother's Day, but I want you to know that I think it was a very significant piece of work, and the tapes are available for those of you who didn't, who weren't here. Uh, for those of you who were here know that Dr. All did a candid, factual, and I think thorough job of trying to lift our consciousness and do some good adult education about uh, one of the great uh, threats and phenomena of our time, which is the AIDS crisis. And so I wanted to publicly thank Bob All for coming and commending you that you might want to get a copy of that tape because it's something everybody uh, needs to know, though none of us really want to know. I want to talk today uh, about um, uh, Peter Totter as metaphor. I have for a number of years resisted using the teeter-totter as a metaphor because the teeter-totter uh, metaphor which presumes uh, that we will balance things is finally not what we want to do with the opposites uh, in life. Uh, we want to integrate them, not balance them. But I'm afraid the older I get, the more convinced I become that uh, uh, integration uh, is uh, something that doesn't come easily, and when it does, it's elusive, and the moment we feel like we've integrated some opposite, they revisit us in some opposite form. Uh, and so maybe balancing is what we're talking about, and to be very honest about the reality that the agony and the ecstasy will be found above the fulcrum. Now let's talk for a moment about this uh, need in humankind uh, to be right. Um, I understand this terrible need in humankind to be right. That is to say, to be not wrong. The word right, which is, I think, uh, an archetypal need in human beings to have something right, uh, comes from uh, the etymology of the word right. The word right really is a diminutive form of the word righteous. And righteous doesn't mean without error, mistake, or sin. Righteous means having a right relationship. In the Old Testament, when uh, we hear the word righteousness, it means a right relationship with God. That's what it means to be righteous. It doesn't mean to be perfect. It doesn't mean to be without sin. It doesn't mean to never make a mistake or always be correct doesn't really even mean to be religious because usually somebody else is deciding for you what it means to be religious. And so to be righteous, on the one hand, is kind of the worst thing I want to be because usually that's defined by somebody else in terms that don't fit me. Also, to be righteous seems to me not to be having any fun. You know, it's like the Puritan fear that somebody somewhere out there is having fun. (laughs) 
I guess for a long time and continually I'm reminded uh, through decision fear and that green bile colored cloud that comes over the horizon of our consciousness called guilt. I'm reminded from time to time that I still believe uh, that it's wrong to have fun. There's something in my ego consciousness that believes that. Now, I don't let it get in my way. <laughs> but uh, it still occurs from time to time. Uh, being right, ultimately, is the desire in humankind to be righteous. And the word righteous really does not mean religious. It doesn't mean error-free or perfect. Righteous means that you have a relationship with God. That's what it means to be righteous. Now, as you've heard me talk before, one of the things about being human is that creation begins with division. Um, I don't know very much about biology or um, genetics, but I do know that, if I remember correctly, the moment that the egg is fertilized, the first thing it does is divide that division and differentiation is very important for human beings. Now, we've talked about this for so long in so many ways, about the center of consciousness needing to differentiate itself from mother and then from others, and then we finally need to differentiate ourselves as an individual in relationship to others or with others, and then we are continually differentiating and dividing until we have it all divided out. And about the time we've got everything decided about who belongs where in all of these neat categories, including ourselves, and then this thing called maturity comes, and everything gets gauzed over in a soft focus, and we can't quite figure out the differences in things, and we begin a whole new journey of consciousness, which is uniting things. Now, of course, life is not linear. That is not to say that we spend the first half of our life dividing things and differentiating, and the second half of our lives putting things back together, uh, but that's a way to image it. Now, what happens then is that the culture, the environment, will begin to tell you several stories. One is uh, the culture story. Now, the second is the family story, and the third is your story. Culture will begin to tell those to you. Now, part of the differentiation and division that goes on is that we will start dividing right from wrong. And so we put everything that's right, let's say, over on the right and everything that's wrong over on the left. And we begin to get a little unbalanced. And so on a teeter-totter metaphor or image, we begin to see that as we differentiate things, the world tells us this is right, and this is wrong. This is good, and this is bad. This is light, and this is dark. And that's important. It's good that the culture does that, that our environment teaches us that, and that our parents and surrogate parents do that for us. It's important to have that differentiation. But we begin to learn by our own experience and our reflection upon it, and with a modicum of maturity, maturity and a little bit of wisdom, we begin to say, you know, I'm unbalanced. 
because whatever it is that I learned is no longer working for me. And I've got to look at all of these things that have been divided and see if there doesn't need to be some movement or readjustment because I am dying. I am dying. That which does not change dies. And if you don't believe that, ask the dinosaurs. Or one of the clinical definitions of death is the cessation of change. And so I'm dying. I've got to change. And life will call you to a new, to a change. And then we have to begin to evaluate and reevaluate all those things that were right and all of those things that were wrong. And we live in other cultures. Three examples. And the culture in which these are, by the way, pedestrian examples, and there are deeper ones that I hope will be implied by these examples and maybe even become explicit. Uh, where I grew up, it was not polite to belch at the table. That was wrong. That's on the left-hand side. But you know, in certain cultures, if you don't belch at the table, it's a sign that you didn't enjoy the meal and it's bad manners to not belch at the table. So what do we do then with our ordered world and universe? If you come into Christchurch Cathedral with your shoes off, you're going to be asked to leave. No shirt, no shoes, no service. <laughs> I went into a beach shop in Southern California one time and it said, no shirt, no shoes, no sweat. <laughs> but if you go into a mosque with your shoes on, you've done a most grievous sin. So in some places it's appropriate to wear shoes, in some places it's appropriate not to wear shoes. And I'm not concerned in your life about your learning where to wear shoes and where not to wear shoes, but I am concerned about that as a metaphor for your life. Uh, when I first entered the Episcopal Church, if a woman came into the church with her head uncovered, uh, we felt that the liturgy would not be valid. <laughs> Most of you, I suspect, grew up, uh, grew up in the Episcopal Church uh, remember the chapel caps that were in the narthex or for those who forgot to wear them. I've seen, you know, women uh, put Kleenexes and bobby pins on their head in order to be covered. So uh, there are other places, you know, to wear your hat indoors. Uh, my father would have jerked the top of my head off if I wore a hat indoors. What we begin to see is that there are some inconsistencies in the world about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And so our nicely ordered world of balance, which usually is ironically an unbalanced world because everything's on one side. And we begin to learn with a little experience and reflection upon it that we die unless 
we are aware of all of those things that are on the other side of the teeter-totter. One of the important functions of the religious process is to be given permission to look at what's on the other side. You're given a sacred story and a set of symbols, all of which have power to face what's on the other side. And the religious journey begins when one begins to become conscious of that which has been denied or repressed. Now, one of the things that the culture does with the stories that it tells us, the culture story and the family story and our own story, is it withholds the secret. Every family has a secret. And so nobody talks about certain things that have gone on in the family because they're all on the left hand of the teeter-totter. And in polite company, you don't talk about that. And so we spend so much of our lives building a case for everything to be right. And as we read from Mrs. Bridge several weeks ago, that just so it's nice. But she learned, as we watched her evolution, she learned that not everything that's nice is good, and not everything that's good is nice. And that we eventually will have to either look on the other side of the teeter-totter or we will die dead. And our biological function will not cease. There will be a spiritual death. We will be unbalanced. And if we stay on the right too long, we will be so insecure in our unbalance that we will begin to believe that we are the of righteousness and goodness, which is God. And the most unbalanced people in culture are those who think they are God and interpret God's will for everybody and move in the line from this is what I think the Bible says to saying this is exactly what the Bible says and anybody who disagrees with me is going to hell. Now that's playing God, which I find very uncomfortable particularly for a priest because if anybody knows how enigmatic the word of God is it's one who has taken an oath to serve it now the extremes of course are being ultimately full of righteousness or goodness so much so that we play God and the other is to be so uh, unaware of righteousness and goodness that we are sociopathic and don't know the difference between right and wrong and are dysfunctional on the other side and are totally consumed with that which destroys. Now we build a case of growing into maturity either religiously, uh, spiritually, uh, psychologically, however you want to talk about it, to where we begin our journey inward, both in the sense of looking within, but also in the teeter-totter metaphor of moving from the extreme of having to know exactly what's right, taking from our parents, from the same spoons that fed us food, a value system, and a sense of cultural patterns. Very important, 
I'm not denying the importance of that. It's very important for a child to begin to differentiate, set boundaries and limits. But the time comes when we have to, we can no longer inherit values, we have to begin to choose them. And part of the process of reconciliation and growth is that we begin to switch the authority from our parents to our peers as we move inward, and that can be a time of balancing, uh, which is a very precarious time because there are lots of ups and downs and experimentation of trying to discover what's on the other side of the fulcrum. And that's a very difficult time, a very scary time. And so much so that we as parents watching our adolescents beginning to move in ought to create safety nets because they're probably going to fall at some point trying to seek a balance. Now, I want to remind you, in my experience, adolescence goes into the 40s. At least. I want to put a parenthesis around this a minute. You know, several weeks ago, I told you the story about my dinner with Mr. Idler, my college basketball coach. There was a, a story I forgot to tell you in that. It's important today for me to tell it. Um, growing up in, in Oklahoma in those days, one of the things that was very important uh, for young men was to decide what was masculine and what was feminine. Uh, and we were pretty good at doing that. And you know pretty much from your own experience growing up anywhere. It's very important for pre-adolescence, adolescence, and post-adolescence to know exactly what's masculine, exactly what's feminine. Everything that, for me, masculine was on the right-hand side, and everything that was feminine was on the left-hand side. That was weak, and this was strong. But there begins at a maturity level uh, some soft experimentation with trying to find out if there isn't something about that other dimension that not only uh, is important uh, in terms of attraction, uh, you know, in the good old days when men were men and women were objects, <laughs> and you begin to see that there are some things about that psychology that are kind of attractive because they make me feel a little more whole than when I'm over here, uh, unbalanced on the right. And so one of our teammates who, uh, gosh, was a man if I ever knew one, he was all big eight, and he was college All-American, we were on a trip to Colorado to play the University of Colorado. And he showed up at the bus with an umbrella. <laughs> In 1962, men didn't carry umbrellas on trips. <laughs> Things changed. Now, Mr. Iba looked at him and said, Boy, what are you doing with that umbrella? <laughs> and this sign of masculine purity said, Well, sir, I thought it might rain. <laughs> Mr. Iba said, Get rid of that damn umbrella. I'll tell you when it's going to rain. That young man is uh, Cecil Epperly, who's one of my dearest friends in the world, and um, 
we had a laugh about that this weekend because he's here visiting me and he's here this morning and he's trying to wear a Cecil, would you stand up? For me? <laughs> Again, just tentative experimentation with looking on the other side. And the reason that religion is so important to us is because we are given not only the permission, but we are given the call to begin to look at the other side. With this incredible promise of God in Christ, and that is that Christ has not eradicated evil, only overcome it so that we are confident enough to begin to look on the left side and begin to sort out for ourselves what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, because on that other side are a lot of things that are life-giving that we've put over there, because mommy and daddy said it was wrong, because the college basketball coach said it was sissy, uh, because now, the particular personalities of the people who were feeding you were different from yours, and they said, this kind of behavior is unacceptable. And there's a lot of things that are in this closet or on this left-hand side that have been rejected that are ours, and we can't become fully who we are until we recapture those as our own. And the only way to do that is to be enabled and being given eyes to look and see and begin to sift through this luggage, this baggage, and see what we need for the rest of our journey and what we can say is no longer needed or appropriate. And we are called to do that. And so we make our move tentatively, and the religious journey for the second half of life is exactly that. It's not trying to decide what's right and what's wrong. If you don't know that by now, you will not be edified. Uh, the second half of life religious journey is to discover what's good for me and what's evil for me. What is it that I need to reclaim as my own, be conscious of it the first time? Is it my femininity? Is it my extroverted or introverted personality? Uh, is it uh, this tendency in me to be too romantic that I need now to recapture? And all having been put down all my life because I didn't do well in school. Can I now, in the second half of my life, realize that I have other gifts that are equally as valuable? Now, we need guides for that, and religion is one of the guides for that, and religious people are guides for that. The problem on this teeter-totter is that we sometimes remain unbalanced for the fear of what's over on the other side. The ultimate fear, of course, is that if we get over there, we'll never come back, or if we get over there, we'll die. Uh, the other thing that human beings are not very good about is paradox, and that is to say that we may discover that two things that are contradictory are both true. And that's very hard for human beings to hold that kind of contradiction or paradox consciously. We also see people who are very skilled at running as fast as they can from the right side to the left side and back, and you never see them leave. <laughs> Who do the most evil acts appearing to be so righteous. 
I mean, the unconscious is quicker than the eye. <laughs> you know, I've had people say things to me that were so loving and wonderful, and I felt so terrible. I love statements like this. This is a statement from somebody who has appeared to be on the right side and runs quickly to the left side and back before you can see them leave and get back, and they say things like, I hate to be the one to tell you. <laughs> and it's to before your very eyes. I mean, you know, one of the great cultural ones is this. Well, I don't care about the thank you note. I just wondered if they got the gift. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong. The, the hardest people to, to relate to are those who are so righteous but are doing such destructive things. Remember Lucy said that to, to Charlie Brown. Some of the worst things that have been inflicted on humankind have been done under the aegis of, I was only trying to help. And some of the most helpful, some of the most righteous people are those who are absolutely blind to their own evil and are living a lie, they are the people of the lie, and they have become so adept at running back and forth uh, from black to white that we never see them leave. And they're doing terribly destructive things to themselves and to others under the name of righteousness, and I was only trying to help, and I hate to be the one to have to tell you. Now, one of the fears we have over there is death. And so we don't go. And even Jesus, uh, speaking the human complaint and the human fear, said, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass by me. I don't want to have to go into the darkness. I don't want to have to face the evil. Even though I'm a graduate of the desert, which I wrestled with evil before I even got into my adult vocation. Remember, Jesus danced with the devil in the desert. Now, even Jesus prays uh, and, and lead us not into this temptation, but deliver us from this. Uh, and yet, at the same time, we cannot fully live until we reconcile ourselves to evil. Not just evil in general, though I believe there is a kind of undifferentiated power of evil that exists, that which seeks to disintegrate, that which seeks to destroy, but I also believe that there is uh, the integration of that in my own personal life, that I have my own personal evil, my own personal uh, sense of that which seeks to divide me and which seeks to destroy me. And uh, most of the time, the most insidious, destructive, uh, evil things about me uh, come on the right-hand side when I think I am so righteous and so in control and know everything there is to know. Now, I guess the best contemporary example I know of, of uh, what Carl Jung gave as a prescription for health, he said, you must finally, in order to become whole, enter that which you fear the most. And for each person it's different. There are some collectives, some generalities that we can talk about, but we finally have to enter that which we fear the most. And it will loom up 
for us usually as a huge shadowy figure or something that is terribly obnoxious to us, something that we're possessed or obsessed about. And we finally have to go and enter it and find out for ourselves where's the good, where's the evil, because both will probably be there. And we have the ability in the second half of life to differentiate. That's what the first half of life is about. And then we can begin to unify and see that that, uh, sometimes what appears to be so evil, may be the thing that will save us. Um, <clears throat> a good contemporary example is Eleanor Munger, who is among us. Eleanor came to me some time ago uh, with the advent of her own retirement. I'm telling the story with her permission. Uh, Eleanor came to me some time ago, years ago, uh, beginning to, uh, in her spiritual journey, look toward her retirement uh, from being a Montessori school teacher and realizing with her own wisdom and a little bit of help from me that there was going to be some energy loose in retirement that needed uh, to be captured by consciousness in order to not be loose on her family or on the world. I mean, the greatest sin is to be unaware because all of this energy goes into destructive and devicey things unless we have some sense of control through consciousness of this energy. And so we began to talk. And so I said to her, well, what is it that you want to do with this energy? And what do you want to do? And she said, well, I want to take Jung very seriously. I want to enter that which I fear the most. And so I said, what do you fear the most? And she said, it is death. And so what are you going to do, Eleanor? And she said, I'm going to start a hospice for AIDS patients who would die. Now, she has. How many men have died in that house? There are 50 men died in that house. The house will be two years old in August. We're only able to house three men at a time, or three persons at a time. We've had one woman. Uh, and so Eleanor entered death consciously by going over to the left side, dealing with homosexuals. And not just homosexuals, and we've all learned from our upbringing that they are bad and that they do bad things and that they should be rejected and kept away from us as objects to be made fun of, to be punished, to be imprisoned. But we learned that. I learned that. So not only do you enter death consciously, but you enter all of the left-hand side of the rejected human beings of our culture. Not only that, but these particular human beings that don't have any place to die are not wealthy, cultural, cultured, educated people always, but are people who have been rejected by society in their own family and have no place else to go. So you can imagine not only are they of a certain sexual orientation that's been rejected by this culture, but they also have been rejected for other reasons because of mental illness, uh, because of uh, certain patterns of life, whatever else, maybe for good reasons. But these people have no place else to go, so they are going to be unattractive with a double jeopardy. The third thing is that they have a disease called AIDS that is going to be 
the bubonic plague of this century. And they are infecting a whole culture. So we have people who are not only a triple jeopardy people, but they are dying. They will not live. They will die because of this illness. So we have death from homosexual, rejected, sick people. And so Eleanor said, I wish this cup would pass by me. But in order for me to get on about the completion of my own life, I must deal with death, and in so doing, I may be able to do something for another. And so 50 human beings have had a safe, clean, loving, religious environment in which to die. All because one was willing to make a move, a change, a transformation, a dynamic transition in life going from a Montessori school teacher to being awarded by the YWCA as one of the ten outstanding women in Houston for her civic responsibility by doing a very dark thing. Now that seems to me to be the nature of religion and its responsibility. I end by saying that the fulcrum is none other than God, God's self. That that which ultimately takes that which is so black as to be threatening and so light as to burn, uh, the only one capable of integrating that is God, God's self. And so what we build for ourselves as the ultimate authority and the ultimate relationship is God. And that fulcrum is the only fulcrum that is large enough to hold these opposites. And as we move inward, we must move toward God. If we move toward ourselves as being the ultimate authority, we are moving away from the middle. If we move toward another and abdicate all of our authority to some other human being, we are once again moving away. We're becoming dependent again. The only ultimate authority for our final salvation is God, God's self, and the fulcrum for this is God. Now, the agony and the ecstasy are both present in one who stands in the midst of the fulcrum. It is Moses before the burning bush. It is the agony that will almost burn you up and the ecstasy that will almost consume you. Both will be true. Now, I end with, I'm sorry, a pedestrian, but I can't avoid showing you what somebody looks like who is balanced on a fulcrum teeter-totter. This look here. It's this look here. And that is the symbol of wholeness for Christians. It's the one who stands balancing the extremes of good and evil, of heaven and earth. This is the one who is the fully integrated balance. One. That's why he is my Christ and the Christ for the world. And that is the symbol of the religious human being. Not one who's always right, but one who lives in the fulcrum, none other than God in Christ. Amen.